A conversation. The murderer entered the fisherman's arms about seven in the evening and walking over to the bar caught the attention of young Tony Marsh. It was better to have a pre-dinner drink here than having to endure the company of his wife. Pint of the usual please, Tony. Have one yourself while you are at it. Tony poured a pint of lager and placed it on the bar in front of his customer. I assume you've just got back. Have you heard about the murder? I saw the news last night and then phoned my wife, the murderer allowed himself to look troubled. I just couldn't believe it. Who would want to hurt Gregory? I can't think of anyone who hated him, Tony paused while polishing glasses. Someone must have loathed Greg to mutilate him like that. I know it utterly sickened me that someone could dishonor a corpse, but I haven't heard the details. I think Mrs. Taylor assumed I knew what the mutilations were when I popped into the post office. She was speculating with her cronies if John Courtney was getting back together with his vet, apparently, he sent her a small present this morning and from the size of the package they think it must be jewelry. The murderer was pleased, he was easily establishing his ignorance of the details quite nicely. It was so easy to manipulate some people. How quickly the horrible is replaced by the trivial in our town's gossip, Tony observed. I think I had better tell you the details, so you at least know the truth and won't be disturbed by some of the ghastlier rumors that are circulating. Thank you, I'd appreciate that. Gregory was stabbed with a sharpened paintbrush and a brush was driven through each eye. The worst thing was that he was still alive when the murderer mutilated him. How absolutely awful. And to cap it all I hear that there was a burglary at the gallery and every copy of his work has been taken, just when they were planning an exhibition of his paintings. There's some good news there, Tony said cheerfully, the exhibition is still going on. How? According to Miss Reynolds a few people, who own his paintings, have said that we can borrow them for the exhibition. That's good, but even then, we won't have many of his paintings to say nothing about his recent work. I would have loved to have seen those, do you remember him describing some of them only a couple of weeks ago? The paintings he was doing especially for the exhibition? I remember and I have some excellent news for you on that front. Apparently, John is doing an art book to accompany the exhibition and has digital copies of Gregory's paintings on his laptop. That's wonderful. The murderer managed a beaming smile although all he wanted to do was hurl his glass at the cheerful fool in front of him. Another customer attracted Tony's attention and the murderer went over to a quiet table to think things through. At first, he was so angry that he couldn't think clearly. All his careful planning undone by such a stupid piece of bad luck. After a while he calmed down and began to think logically and realized that with one bold move on his part, he could snatch victory from a possible disaster and also prove, once more, how much better he was than everyone else. First of all, Courtney lived on the outskirts of the town and the back of the odd-numbered properties in his road could be approached on a footpath through the woods. He would need a quick disguise, but he did have an old plastic hockey mask in his possession from the time he'd gone to a horror movie-themed fancy dress party. He could easily get the creosote-covered boots from where he'd hidden them. The dogs might prove a problem but last winter he'd won a particularly strong-smelling deodorant aerosol in the church tombola and a blast of that would make the curs back off until he could grab their collars. A small smile touched his lips, using his keys he could let himself into the house through the back door while Courtney was out walking the dogs and ambush him when he came in. Having stolen a complete set of the estate's keys definitely helped. He smiled at the memory, he'd only taken the keys to see if he could outwit the simple-minded estate manager and after all it never hurt to be prepared. One final component was necessary, the paintbrushes. He knew that Courtney was an artist, but it might be prudent to take some from the art equipment that his wife bought but never used. There was one thing missing, he no longer had a set of hooded overalls so there was a forensic risk. 
It wasn't really a problem all he had to do was establish a reason for his traces to be in Courtney's cottage and he knew just the right gambit. He would show his tender side tonight, he decided, and make his wife a special hot chocolate before bed. One with a mound of cream floating on it, lots of freshly grated chocolate and of course, the essential additive, an extra, finely crushed sleeping pill. She had been quite worried by the presence of a murderer in the town, and he thought she needed a good night's sleep. Satisfied he sat back and spent some time enjoying his drink. He was actually a public benefactor after all, this sleepy town needed some excitement and an enigmatic serial killer would put it on the map especially, like Jack the Ripper, since no one would ever solve the crimes. The thought pleased him, and he wondered what the media would call him. Then it occurred to him that a well-judged contact with a journalist and he could name himself. With luck there would be a film in a few years, if there was, he'd make sure that he played an extra or something in it. He walked up to the bar debating whether to have a second pint and risk being late for dinner or get home early as he had some things to get ready. Another pint? Tony asked as he approached. I hope you don't mind me asking but you look much more cheerful now than when you came in. No one's enough tonight. I was thinking about what you said about the digital images of Gregory's paintings. Now one of the companies I work for is all the most up-to-date printing equipment and I know they can print directly onto big canvases. I thought I'd go and see John and tell him. You never know I might even be able to negotiate a discount for the cooperative. So, I'll see you later, perhaps tomorrow evening. Good night. The murderer headed to the door pleased with this last exchange. Now if anything went wrong there would be a good reason for forensic traces at Courtney's cottage. A peaceful Friday evening. I walked back through the town with the two dogs in a much lighter frame of mind. The events of Thursday had been quite awful but no further unpleasantness had occurred and I thought of my panicked actions of the night before with a bit of self-mockery. Either the murderer had found what they were looking for or the theft and subsequent destruction of Gregory's work had been a spasm of hatred by the murderer that was intended not only to kill the man but destroy all memory of him. The delicatessen was still open, so I bought several slices of home-cooked ham, a dish of mixed olives and a wedge of Keen's cheddar, a very good handmade Somerset cheese. With the salad ingredients already in my fridge I could make a quick and satisfying meal before walking over to Elizabeth's cottage. For a moment I contemplated calling her and asking if she wanted to join me for supper before I remembered that I had decided to keep our relationship on a friendly work-based level. As I went through my gate and up the path Henry started to pull back, so I let Honey and him off their leads for a quick run round the garden. I looked at him standing just inside my garden trembling and remembered, rather shamefacedly, that he must be going through an awful time. I walked back to him, crouched down and stroked him until the trembling stopped. When he was settled, I opened the front door picked up the post and called the dogs into the house. Nestled amongst the normal junk mail and bills there was a hand-delivered envelope that I opened with interest. It was a card from David Vaughn expressing his sympathy for my horrific experience and offering his help he to make certain that the exhibition was a success. I was pleasantly surprised by the card. David Vaughn had always struck me as a very busy man who was wrapped up in his own affairs, but I was willing to accept that I had misjudged him and that it often takes a disaster to reveal a person's true self. My first job when I got home was to feed the cats and change the animals' water bowls. Both Tara and Kathkin wanted some attention, so I spent a happy few minutes stroking them. Tara was very chatty and kept meowing gently to me even while purring like a generator. Normally I locked down the cat flap at night but a memory of the fire in the quarry persuaded me to leave it open until the killer was caught. I would hate for my cats to get trapped in the house if I was somewhere else and could not open the doors for them. Using the items, I had purchased on the way home I made a quick ham salad. As I was going to be spending most of the evening at the fisherman's arms, I decided to give the wine a miss and enjoy a mug of green gunpowder tea with my supper. 
As it was a casual evening with a colleague I went upstairs shaved carefully, took a long shower, and then dressed carefully. Taking the dogs with me I strolled cheerfully through the town to see Cottage. I was surprised by a sudden hesitancy and lack of confidence as I walked up to Elizabeth's door. For crying out loud, I remonstrated with myself. Firstly, I was no longer a shy teenager and secondly this wasn't a date, only a meeting with a colleague and friend. A more cynical part of my mind reminded me that I had liberally splashed on a lavender-based aftershave before I left the house. To keep the mosquitoes at bay I rationalized. When you can't even con yourself, it is time to give up. I knew I was starting to show an unhealthy level of interest in Elizabeth, and I was going to have to act in a mature fashion. She was a very good friend but with a 15-year age difference I was far too old for her. I was acting like a teenager even though I knew that her last two relationships had ended badly. It was up to me to act properly towards her, she needed to know that some men could be good friends and only good friends. My resolution took a severe jolt when Elizabeth opened her door, and it took a severe amount of self-control to stop me taking her into my arms. She was never a woman to use much in the way of makeup and always dressed very simply. Almost, I had speculated, as if she wanted to remain in the shadows, another indicator, I ruefully thought, that she didn't need any ill-judged and unwelcome advances from an overweight middle-aged colleague. Tonight, she looked different, her auburn hair, which she normally wore up was loose around her shoulders and brushed so much that it glowed. The early evening sun caught the lighter red highlights with streaks of fire. Elizabeth had done something subtle with makeup, don't ask me what I'm just an ordinary guy, so that the green of her eyes was intensified. I could see that she had chosen a lipstick that complemented the normal healthy tan of her skin. She was looking exceptionally beautiful, and I was glad that I had taken some care with my own appearance. She had dressed with a devastating simplicity in a plain white blouse and a long, dark green peasant-style floral skirt. A belt of silver links called attention back to her figure. I glanced down and saw that she was wearing simple brown leather sandals, suitable footwear for walking dogs but elegant enough to complement the rest of her outfit. I had never seen her looking so desirable. Well do I pass muster, or should I change? She said with a laugh. I just saw you do a literal double take. You'll do very well. I managed although my voice sounded slightly strained. I'm not sure that I'm in your class. I should at least have worn a jacket. On an evening like this? She grinned, you'd probably bake. With that she picked a brown leather clutch and a jade pashmina off her hall table and pulled the door closed. Offering me her arm in a way that would have made any refusal rude. Shall we walk, Mr. Courtney? I knew as we walked away from her cottage, that this was one of those magical evenings that remain in your memories for the rest of your life. Even with my resolution to act in a mature fashion it was apparent that our friendship had altered and would always be deeper. We reached the path down from the cliff top and I looked out over the beach. The tide was out, and the sea was barely rippled by the slight summer swell. We started walking along the sand and within minutes I found myself carrying Elizabeth's sandals as she happily walked along the sea's edge, the wavelets caressing her toes. I was going to ask if the water was cold when I remembered that she always swam before breakfast except when the conditions were too dangerous. There was something delightfully youthful about her that evening and I found myself matching her mood. Henry contented himself with charging at the wavelets barking before running out of range whenever any water touched his feet. Honey, however, brought me a stick and contentedly retrieved it no matter how far out I threw it. It struck me, as I strolled along the beach with Elizabeth in companionable silence playing with the dogs, that walking along a beach on a summer's evening, holding hands with a beautiful woman was as close to paradise as I'd been for a long time holding hands? That was most definitely not part of the plan. I glanced at my companion and saw a radiant contentment on her face. 
it would be churlish to suddenly let go and risk ruining her mood. Anyway, just this once didn't really matter, and I had been giving her rather confused signals. It was with mixed feelings when we got to the end of the beach, and she released my hand so she could rinse her feet at one of the standpipes to remove the sand. I was quick to offer her the use of my handkerchief as a makeshift towel. We stood there with Elizabeth balancing herself with one hand on my shoulder as she washed and dried her right foot before putting on a sandal. She then repeated the process on the other side. All the time I was very aware of the fact that I liked her subtle floral perfume and that she had very shapely calves. After a while I tried counting seagulls, but it wasn't a very effective distraction. We arrived at the fisherman's arms to find most of our course group sitting in the beer garden. It had become a pleasant tradition to mark the last night of a course with an informal get-together at the pub. We sat down and enjoyed a very good evening. One of the highlights was Mrs. Prentice announcing that she'd pay for her husband to return in the autumn as a birthday present while she went to New York. Tony arrived at 9 o'clock with a large bag, which he casually placed by my chair, and I asked him to go round the table getting everyone's order for the next round. Once everyone had a new drink I called for silence and gave a small speech thanking everyone for coming and trusting that they had all enjoyed their week. I then reached into the bag and began passing round small gifts to mark the end of their stay. These were an art book showcasing the work of the cooperative members who demonstrated during the week, each section included a small tutorial summarizing the lessons of the week. Every couple or individual received one of these. Everyone then got a small piece of our work usually one of Elizabeth's pottery cats, but I noticed that she'd substituted a slightly larger horse for Mr. Prentice. The next half hour was taken up by our guests gradually leaving most of them were pensioners and they were all traveling the next day. During that time, I received two more inquiries about helping someone to publish their books, which made for a healthy number of commissions over the week. I knew that Elizabeth had several pottery commissions and our talented animal artist, Mary Gentle, always generated some work. All in all, excepting Gregory's unfortunate demise, it had been a good week for the cooperative. Once the party had broken up Elizabeth and I moved to a smaller table where we could enjoy a view of the last of the sunset over the bay and having got another drink, I returned to the question that had intrigued me earlier at the gallery. What is the story behind Vaughn and her children, she seems to adore her son but is very cold about her daughter? Elizabeth stared into her glass for a few seconds as she gathered her thoughts then studied my face for a moment. Antonia Pittman is a friend of mine and some of what I'm going to tell you is not public knowledge. I am only going to share what I know because it will make it easier for you to understand Lady Jacqueline's family. I know you won't be indiscreet but some of this might affect Antonia's career. I nodded my assent slightly surprised by Elizabeth's serious manner. She smiled at something and brushed a wing of hair back from her face before beginning. And married a young man she had met while reading English at university. She was in her early twenties, and I gathered that Lady Jacqueline and her husband, Sir Algernon, were concerned that she had married too early to a young man who, in Lady Jacqueline's words, lacked any strength of character. Young George Pittman surprised his parents-in-law. He put his geology degree to good use and within eight years had risen to a very senior position in an oil company although it had met many months away from home. His knowledge of the industry and the fundamental geology allowed him to make very sound investments. I know they would call it insider trading nowadays but back then it was seen as laudable for a man to invest in his company and his knowledge. He was in his early thirties, successful in his chosen career and independently wealthy. He had a beautiful wife and two children that he adored. To the world George was one of those truly blessed individuals. From what I have heard he was also a thoroughly decent man. Lady Jacqueline developed a close bond with her son-in-law when she realized that they shared the same philanthropic benevolence and a belief that there is no point in money if you cannot do good things with it. 
He was a fundamentally prudent man and realizing that his wife lacked the same financial acumen as himself made sure that the bulk of his fortune was in trust funds. His intention was that, should anything happen to him, his wife and children would be provided for while protecting them from the financial predators that always prey on the weak. About 27 years ago George and Anne left their children Ian, who I think was about 11 and the 8-year-old Antonia, at the manor with their grandparents while they drove over to Swanage for the wedding of a relative's daughter. It was a perfect day and Lady Jacqueline tells me that they left in good spirits with the hood of their convertible down so that they could enjoy the day to the fullest. Their one thing that George either subconsciously overlooked or was truly ignorant of was that Anne had taken to drinking to ease her loneliness and I think lack of self-confidence. Whatever the reason Anne had had several discreet vodkas by the time the reception was over. George, however, knowing that his wife would be driving home had let his hair down and enjoyed the company of his extended family. While he wasn't drunk, he knew he was over the limit. It was a beautiful afternoon, and they were still young and deeply in love. The happiness of the day and the alcohol had removed Anne's normal inhibitions. The thrill of driving a powerful German sports car, the hood down and the wind blowing through her hair affected her judgment and she started showing off, driving far faster than her skill warranted. A witness said the car shot through a village with the two of them laughing like teenagers. At least they were happy. On the road over the army gunnery ranges, somewhere between Kimmeridge and Lulworth where the road runs between quite deep banks, she shot round a corner to find a tank in the road ahead of her. She swerved, but not far enough. George Pittman died at the scene before they could rescue him, the tank having partially overrun the front of the car. Physically, and walked away without a scratch, but inside she was broken. And had a breakdown, and the children were raised by Lady Jacqueline and her husband until Sir Algernon's death. Elizabeth paused for a while and shivering slightly wrapped her pashmina around her shoulders. I remember reading about that crash when I was younger, it was a truly terrible affair. I remarked thoughtfully, I seem to recall that there was an inquest but no prosecution because the driver wasn't fit to plead. What an utter tragedy. In my opinion it only got worse, Elizabeth continued sagely. If they had prosecuted Anne and she had felt that she was being punished for her actions it might have made her recovery quicker and she would have emerged stronger as it was her breakdown continued for several years. Ian, being older was very understanding and was supportive of his mother. Antonia, on the other hand, felt rejected and after a while began to blame Anne for killing the father that she had adored. When Anne eventually recovered Lady Jacqueline worked hard to restore the relationship between her daughter and granddaughter which although not close was at least civil. There were hopes that eventually the two women would become close. Ian, who was left well provided for by twin inheritances from his father and grandfather, has never seen any reason to work but has instead followed the career path of a privileged sportsman and has been a prominent amateur in several fields. Notably cricket and the winter sports. Now that he is in his late thirties and slowing up, he has turned his attention to yachting following a summer spent messing around on the Lady Caroline. Antonia, although as financially secure as her brother is not the kind of person to sit back and live off a trust fund. She read philosophy at university and went on to take a law degree. It was generally assumed that she would become a barrister and perhaps eventually a judge. To everyone's surprise once she had her law degree, she joined the Metropolitan Police on a graduate entry program. Like her father she is a diligent person who backs her knowledge and skill. She is now a detective inspector and is expected to reach the top of her career. About five years ago and met a seemingly sophisticated barrister in his late 40s called David Vaughan and although there is a 15-year age gap they were soon regarded as a couple. There was, however, Something about the remarks that he made and the questions he asked, often on financial matters, that alarmed Lady Jacqueline and she asked Antonia if she could do some background checks. 
she discovered that David was quite a playboy who had a bit of an unsavory reputation in the seedier parts of London. He was also an inveterate gambler who often lost more than he could easily afford. People Antonia spoke to referred to his sense of entitlement and references to making the big score. Lady Jacqueline confronted her daughter with the findings, an act that rather backfired. And accused her mother of meddling, berated Antonia for her unforgivable snooping and has since not said a nice thing about her. To cap it all the next day and accepted David's proposal. All Lady Jacqueline managed to do was make and insist on a prenuptial arrangement, something she agreed to only to silence her mother. After his marriage David attempted to get selected as a member of parliament hoping that his mother-in-law's contacts would help. Typically, he decided on the Liberal Democrats a choice that outraged Lady Jacqueline's conservative friends. In the early part of his marriage David tried to maintain his libertine way of life. This became a constant source of friction because often he squandered all his earnings and they had to survive on Anne's trust income and a generous allowance that Lady Jacqueline gave them from the estate's profits. Things came to a head when Anne discovered he was having an affair with a younger woman, a Miss Mary Slater. Usually, the rose ended with Anne apologizing to David and acknowledging that he had only strayed because I am not a good enough wife. Elizabeth stopped talking and took an angry swallow of her wine. I take it that you wouldn't be so accepting of a husband's peccadilloes? I inquired jokingly. Absolutely. She answered with some heat, if I could arrange it, he'd be right down at the vets for some non-elective surgery. I winced at the image and laughing she continued with her story, Lady Jacqueline, mindful of Antonia's research instructed her solicitor to write to David and in a letter stating that if he ever had another affair, she would instantly cancel their allowance and have him removed from the estate. Attached to the letter was a new will that stated that should anything at all suspicious happen to Lady Jacqueline everything goes to Ian and Antonia bypassing and completely. How do you know about this letter, surely it was confidential? I asked. Elizabeth frowned at a memory, it was a particularly ugly scene. David confronted Lady Jacqueline in the middle of town waving the letter at her and calling her a cross-grained, nasty, evil-minded old bat. Once the dust settled David had to accept the inevitable, he just isn't in Lady Jacqueline's league. After that confrontation David seemed to change, he got laughed at in the fisherman's arms, most notably by Gregory and after a couple of angry outbursts suddenly admitted that he'd acted quite appallingly. I hear that he apologized to his wife and Lady Jacqueline. Apparently, he has since tried to mend his ways. This paints him in a different light to the man I know, I said as Elizabeth paused in her account. Since I've been down here, I've found him to be quite pleasant. At times I'll agree that he can be a bit arrogant and quite boorish but normally that's when he's trying too hard to be impressive. If you remember he spent a long time making sure that the cooperative was on a good business footing when Lady Jacqueline gave us the building. He did all our paperwork free of charge. That's the point I think, Elizabeth smiled at me. After his affair David finally grew up and found that he got pleasure out of helping people. I don't think Lady Jacqueline or Antonia will ever trust him fully but he's actually a lovable rogue now that he's had some of his arrogance knocked out of him. I raised my eyebrows questioningly at Elizabeth who grinned back. Do you know that you look like a spaniel with indigestion when you do that? I harumphed with indignation and was about to defend myself when she reached over and touched her fingers to my lips. I'm starting to feel slightly chilly, so I'll share one final gem that Antonia told me before we go inside. I nodded my agreement and she continued. When David first came down to the manor house to meet the family, he informed Lady Jacqueline that after his marriage she would have to move into the dower house. You can imagine her reaction and I do know that both Anne and David felt rather offended when she made them live in the smaller house themselves. With that Elizabeth stood up and taking Honey's lead led the way into the pub leaving me to follow with Henry. The rest of the evening passed all too quickly and before I knew it, I was walking Elizabeth home. 
For a moment as I said goodbye, I was tempted to kiss her, but common sense prevailed. I thought she looked rather disappointed. Good night, John, she said sweetly. Thank you for the lovely evening. I'll see you tomorrow. The next moment she was gone, and I was looking at her front door. I had the feeling that somehow, in a very nice way, Elizabeth was laughing at me and my scruples. I walked home with my mind in a whirl and having got home helped myself to a glass of single malt whiskey, I have always preferred the whiskies of the islands and the west coast. My favorite of the moment being a bottle of Laphroaig, which, I remembered, had been given to me by David at Christmas. Feeling restless and knowing that I wouldn't sleep I powered up my laptop and checked the relevant website. Gregory's book had been built without any problems. With great satisfaction I instructed the site to publish the book and ordered a copy. I went to bed about an hour later and as I had expected spent several hours tossing and turning as my mind replayed the evening. It was painfully obvious that against my better judgment that I was starting to fall in love with my younger colleague. I finally fell asleep resolving to myself that I would make sure it wouldn't go any further. Tara waited patiently until the sounds of her person tossing and turning were replaced, eventually, by a gentle snoring noise. She jumped off the bed and meowing quietly led the other animals into the moonlit kitchen. Honey, how did it go with him today? Was there any more trouble at the gallery? The Bengal sat by the sink looking down at her pretty friend, who wasn't all that stupid considering that the poor thing had been born a dog. Everything seems to be going well. They have changed their locks and I couldn't detect the scent of creosote on anyone who came near us. Nothing we can do then, except to be extra vigilant. Tara meowed in frustration. If you two dogs can manage it, I would like Henry to remain awake while Honey snoozes. Kathkin and I will do the same, that way we have both feline and canine senses available. Of course, Tara, I'm happy to oblige as long as we both get a chance to sleep some of the night. Kathkin agreed quickly while trying to ensure that any extra burden would be shared fairly. Anything to help, Henry rumbled his agreement still rather too awed by Tara to participate fully in the conversation. And the other matter, honey? Our Tom had a good evening with Frodo's queen, and I honestly thought they were finally going to be sensible about it. Our Tom backed away at the last minute, honey whined in frustration. I think, however, that Frodo's queen has made her mind up. In that case, Tara purred, the poor creature hasn't a chance. Copyright 2014 Robert M. War, all original rights reserved.